hppodcraft.com. Henry had words with Edward in the study the night before Edward died, said Carolyn Glynn. She spoke not with acrimony, but with grave severity. Rebecca Ann Glynn gasped by way of assent. She sat in a wide flounce of black silk in the corner of the sofa and rolled terrified eyes from her sister Carolyn to her sister Mrs. Stephen Brigham, who had been Emma Glynn, the one beauty of the family. The latter was beautiful still, with a large, splendid, full-blown beauty. She filled a great rocking chair with her superb bulk of femininity and swayed gently back and forth, her black silks whispering and her black frills fluttering. Even the shock of death, for her brother Edward lay dead in the house, could not disturb her outward serenity of demeanor. But even her expression of masterly placidity changed before her sister Carolyn's announcement and her sister Rebecca Ann's gasp of terror and distress in response. I think Henry might have controlled his temper when poor Edward was so near his end, she said with an asperity which disturbed slightly the roseate curves of her beautiful mouth. Of course he did not know, murmured Rebecca Ann in a faint tone. Of course he did not know it, said Carolyn quickly. She turned on her sister with a strange, sharp look of suspicion. Then she shrank as if from the other's possible answer. I didn't know either. Did you know? I didn't know. How was I supposed to know? You know, if you're saying something like that to anybody, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I didn't know how. I, I didn't know it was a Nazi rally. I thought we were going to do the thriller dance or something. That's why I thought everybody was out here. <laughs> One thing I do know is that this week's story, of which we just heard the beginning, is The Shadows on the Wall by Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman. Or Lovecraft just called her Mary E. Wilkins. Well, that's good to know because this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and we've got a sponsor this week, one of my favorite sponsors in the world, Unspeakable Oath magazine. For decades, I've been reading The Unspeakable Oath. Issue 24 is out, and it is beautiful. Mm. For those of you that do not know, The Unspeakable Oath is a magazine that focuses on the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. It's been around forever. It is the best Call of Cthulhu periodical, bar none. Yeah, it's got some of the best games I've ever played. That memorable games from 15 years ago are from that magazine. And I yeah. rarely get the chance to play anymore, but I'll grab the PDFs because I like reading through the scenarios. They're so creative, it's just like reading fiction. This week's issue has got a great haunted house adventure called The Mardler House by my bud, Greg Stoltze, who I know in the, from Quad Cities. He's a Quad City boy, just like us. Excellent. That's all the best horror comes from the Quad Cities. <laughs> There's also a great article in this issue called The Cult of A, by Brett Kramer, and it looks yeah. at a cult that is centered around anorexia. I was reading this article. It's really cool because a lot of research went into it because I started reading it, and I go, okay, this is fiction. But I wasn't sure, so I went and looked it up, and it wasn't fiction. Right. It's about those message boards around anorexia. Yeah, I think they're called, like, Friends of Annie, which is these women that, like, try and support each other in their disorder, in their anorexia and stuff. Right. He's built upon this existing thing, and kind of made it into sort of a, a supernatural cult. And right. it's, it's it's really interesting and very provocative in a, in a cool way. And I mean, that's something about this magazine is it's always pushing boundaries. Yeah. And, and the things in there were kind of shocking about the, the disorder. Hey, did you hear this last week about that Scooby-Doo controversy? Uh, they released a new video and in it, Daphne, uh, she's she gets cursed and she goes mm-hmm. from a size two to a size eight. And it's the most horrifying thing that's ever happened to Daphne. 
And the way they depict her in the cartoon, she's really fat. Like, there's no way it's a size eight. You know what I wow. mean? Wow. <laughs> and a lot of people are upset because they're like, hey, I'm just watching Scooby-Doo. And then you just told my daughter that a size eight is really fat. <laughs> Well, that seems like a justified controversy. What do you mean? (laughs) Are there other Scooby-related? You are teaching children to eat sandwiches with dogs. (laughs) No, that's not not what I meant. I meant like people, there's controversies about like, did Han shoot first or did Greedo shoot? You know, things like that. It's like, who, that doesn't, who cares? That's not really a big deal. But I mean, this is making little girls feel bad. Yeah, exactly. Little girls that watch Scooby-Doo, which is... Like the coolest girls ever. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, there was a lot of hoopla around that that I was I was thinking about in terms of our sponsor and this article, uh, but also in terms of our story a little bit. But but to finish up on the unspeakable oath, the other thing I read and there was a really good review of True Detective. You know, a lot of people ask me about that since it came out yeah. and we do this kind of show. And I thought the, the the review in there was really good. So it's issue number twenty four, the unspeakable oath. Speak it, yep. get it, check it out. You can get it at your game store. You can get it online at artdream.com or at PDF format at drythroughrpg.com. And who is that we heard uh, reading at the top of the show? This week's reader is Chelsea Volgaris, friend of the show. She's uh, just a fan and she sent in a really sweet demo and we were like, wow, we got to use this woman on our show. And we did. We did. So thank you, Chelsea. Outstanding work. So what do we know about this week's author? Well, she's got a lot of names, Mary Eleanor (laughs) Wilkins Freeman, but she, uh, uh, she lived from 1832 to 1930. New Englander mm-hmm. for life, mostly Massachusetts. Her parents were Orthodox Congregationalists, so she had mm-hmm. a really strict religious upbringing. Very strict code of behavior for women at that time. A lot of the writing that she did concerns the woman's role in society, or at least addresses those themes. Now, when she was six, I found this stuff interesting. When she was six, she had a younger brother who died. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when she was born, I think she, uh, her parents had already lost a child. So she was she was somewhat spoiled, even though they had such a strict household. Right. She had another younger sister, Anna, who was seven years younger than her, but she died at 17. Oh. And I think losing all of her siblings may have pushed her toward writing supernatural stories, which is what she's most known for in terms of her short story right. work, ghost stories. Because she, she started her work in children's literature. She wrote children's stories. Yeah, that's right. And initially she was doing that to help support her family. Kind of like Lovecraft, they started out in pretty good shape. But throughout her youth, they found their circumstances constantly being downgraded. And this panic of uh, falling from grace in society, I think, also influences her work quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But she started in children's publications. She really discovered that she loved reading and writing maybe earlier than that when her family had moved to Brattleboro in in Vermont, which is, you know, while she was still in grade school. Her father opened this dry goods store next to a bookstore. She spent a lot of her time at that bookstore you know, perusing the Mm -hmm. literature. And another interesting thing about her time that it maybe also informed the bent of some of her work, about 40 yards from the house where they were living was the Marsh building of the Vermont Insane Asylum. Oh. And the patients in the asylum were allowed and I think encouraged to roam the neighborhood in the daytime. And a lot of them would just show up on her doorstep. Whoa. And so she was kind of dealing with insane people when she was little. Another thing interesting about her biography, when she was in her teens, she fell in love with this military guy, I think he was a military guy, Hanson Tyler, but he was not into her, never returned her affection. But she lived with this admiration for him forever, I think. She said when she died, the person she most wanted to see in the afterlife was this unrequited love of hers. Whoa. She did get married when she was in her 40s to another fellow named Dr. Charles Freeman, Ah. and he was kind of a free-spirited guy. She was in her late 40s, I think. Uh, The marriage started good, but he was a drunk, and eventually she had him committed to the New Jersey State Hospital for the Insane. What? Against his will. And he was so upset about it that he totally wrote her out of his will. In fact, I think at the end he left her $1 in his will. 
Wow. Kind of like a bad tip, you know? (laughs) Pretty awful. Really started taking off as a writer in the 1880s, though. Her stories were getting published in Harper's Bazaar, and she became Mm -hmm. friendly with their editorial staff. Her 1891 book, A New England Nun and Other Stories, is perhaps her best-known book. I find her really interesting. I think more stuff about her bio will come up as we talk through this story. Um, and just a note about, you know, where we're turning. We just got done with August. The Return of Phantasme. The Return of Phantasme. We're kind of veering away from the monster party as the summer winds down. Yeah. Little little monster hangover. This month, we're going <laughs> to we're going to we're going to focus on women writers this month. A good thing to do. I mean, Lovecraft mentions uh, a few. Quite a few. And we've actually already done a lot of their stories. Yeah. Uh, we've got this week's story and, and we've got one picked for next week. But if anybody can recommend more women's fiction in the weird fiction tradition, uh, hopefully public domain, write in and let us know because we haven't chosen a couple of stories for the end of the month and uh, yep. we're open for suggestions. Again, hopefully anybody before, let's say, 1910, 1920. That'd be fantastic. If anybody's got a favorite story they can recommend. Now, what, what's going on in this story? From the top of the story, we know that Edward is dead. Some ladies are talking about him. They're sisters, Caroline and Rebecca Ann Glynn, and then their married sister, Emma, their brother, this guy Edward, is dead and his body's still in the house. I thought that opening, there were some real peculiarities to the way the women are described that probably could only have come from a female author at this time. Mm -hmm. It it definitely lets us know we're not in typical weird fiction territory because, for one, there are three women. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which actually is even more than any summer movie I saw all summer. (laughs) Total. And it's also interesting in the way that it's written that there seems to be a winner among the three sisters. Yeah. Emma being described as the beautiful one. She's married. And also the one that got married mm-hmm. and she seems to have this outward serenity it's almost like imperial you know right but it seems to me that caroline is the one that sort of is in charge i agree well maybe not in charge but maybe the smartest it's hard to tell what their characters are at this point right but i did love this line when they were describing emma it said she was a large splendid full-blown beauty she filled a great rocking chair with her superb bulk of femininity Which goes against our ideas now of maybe what a beauty is. In the edition I read, after that sentence, there was actually a little footnote. And if you get down to the bottom and read, it says, F*** you, Daphne. (laughs) Right there. It says it. Which is amazing. (laughs) Also, not to belabor it, but the opening gives you a, a social context, which is that the men are doing things. And the women are kind of sequestered away to whisper about it amongst themselves. You know. Now, the topic of conversation that they're having right there is about... Henry having words with Edward before he died. Now, Emma gets a little indignant about this. I liked that Caroline's response to what he mean was, nobody means anything. (laughs) I I thought it was a really kind of modern piece of dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem that way. It does. And then she wanders off to go attend to the brother's body, right? Yeah, yeah. So Rebecca and Emma are alone now for a bit of gossip. Emma wants to know if either one of them heard about what was said. And Rebecca actually... She can tell Rebecca knows. Emma finally gets it out of her that Henry was angry with Edward because he's been kind of freeloading at the family home. He's been staying there and doesn't really have a job. And Henry is a successful guy. Now, we find out later that Henry's actually also another brother. Mm -hmm. But at this point in the story, you don't really know who Henry is. In the conversation, they bring up that Edward was freeloading, supposedly, Mm -hmm. but not really because he had the right to be there because of their father's will. Right. The house was partially left to him as well, so he can be there, and they don't really understand why Henry was being such a jerk about it. I guess maybe because we find out later that Henry's kind of a hardworking doctor guy, right. and he's got lots of patients. And But there's some ghost stories set up there. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. He says, uh, 
I, I heard him tell Edward that he had no business here at all, and he thought he had better go away. And then she says, well, what, what did Edward say? And then Edward replied that he would stay here as long as he lived and afterwards too, if he had a mind to, and he would like to see Henry get him out. And then he laughed. Then he laughed. And that's the setup for the whole thing. They introduce a little Henry portrait of a serial killer here, actually, because Henry, it says, uh-huh. um, did he, how did he look when he came out of the room? She goes, he looks mad. Uh, you know what he looks like when he's mad. And Emma says, do you remember that time he killed the cat because she had scratched him? So Henry's character is such that he kills small animals. <laughs> right. you know, he's that kind of, there's something cruel about him. Caroline comes back into the room. She warms mm-hmm. her hands by the fire. Emma starts saying that Henry shouldn't have been so harsh with Edward right before he died like that. But she says it loud enough that maybe somebody outside the room would hear it. Yeah, and they're, they're all a little afraid of Henry. I, yeah, I they got are. the impression. So they don't want him to overhear. They're speculating. Supposedly, they start talking about how did Edward die? And they know that he's always had a problem with dyspepsia, which is just indigestion. She asks if there's going to be an investigation, like, you know, an examination of the body to find out why he really died or, or how he really died. And then Caroline angrily just shouts, no. I think it was, yeah, don't be careful what you say. But we know at this point there's foul play because after she says no... It says the three sisters' souls seem to meet on one common ground of terrified understanding through their eyes. You know, they know there's foul play. And right. they clearly loved Edward as well, because as they talk about them, him, they say, oh, he never had a crossword to speak to anybody. No. He was the good brother. Yeah, he was really nice to everyone. And the only time he ever really got uppity with anybody was with Henry. And that was because Henry was really mean. Right. And just at that moment... Henry comes in. They give the, and this is the point we find out that Henry's actually one of the brothers. He looks at Caroline, who gives him kind of a cold, hard look, and then he just laughs. And he looks at Emma and he goes, "Ah, oh, Emma, you you look like you get younger every year." Oh, you. <laughs> Emma, Emma eats it up. She she loves it. She thinks it's great that he's saying this kind of stuff to her. Yeah, it's and he looks like her a little bit. They're the two attractive siblings. Yeah, and I, I kind of got a picture here without her saying it explicitly that maybe. These two have traditionally been somewhat in league with each other. And then the two spinsters, you know, they're always kind of the ones right. that maybe know more, but um, don't have as much power, perhaps. Right. Not that Emma is, in this case, in league with him, but maybe traditionally that's the way it's gone. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. So Caroline says, you know, that's really an appropriate thing to say. Our brother's just dead. And you should be talking about the person that's not going to be growing any older because he's dead. Henry goes, oh, you're, you're being silly. And then she just had enough of it and leaves. Yeah. He goes, Pfft. That broads off her nut. <laughs> what a jerk. His brother's dead. Now, Emma asks Henry what he thinks he died of. And he mm-hmm. says, oh, it's it the gastric thing. And she says, well, do you think there should be an examination of the body? He says, there was no need. I'm perfectly certain as to the cause of death. Yeah, I'm sure he is. And when he says this, it freaks Emma out. Like she feels a chill run down her spine because mm-hmm. she knows when he says that it's got subtext that means you know like i haven't killed the guy yeah so she can't take it she gets up and kind of staggers out a bit and she goes where are you going she goes i got some sewing to do and then she just kind of scampers out cut to the afternoon three sisters are in the study emma's sewing some black clothes caroline is writing on the table and rebecca's just hanging out on a couch emma asks rebecca to get up and bring the lamp over because it's too dark and she can't see what she's sewing so emma says you know you don't need there's plenty of light from the window what's your problem and then Emma goes, come on, why won't you get it? Why are you being problematic here? And Rebecca says, fine, picks up the lamp and then puts it on a table on the opposite side of the room. And Rebecca's making stuff up. She's like, I just like to sit in the dark. That's all it is. But that's kind of a strange thing to say. I'm thinking, oh, maybe she's gothy. Maybe that's yeah. what's going on. 
<laughs> but no, that's not that's not what what's happening. So Caroline says, put it on this table. She does. Once it's on the table, it casts some shadows on the wall. Right. And there's one of them that's particularly strange. Mrs. Brigham rose, her work slipping to the floor, and began walking around the room, moving various articles of furniture with her eyes on the shadow. Then suddenly she shrieked out, Look at this awful shadow! What is it? Carolyn, look! Look! Rebecca, look! What is it? All Mrs. Brigham's triumphant placidity was gone. Her handsome face was livid with horror. She stood stiffly, pointing at the shadow. Then, after a shuddering glance at the wall, Rebecca burst out in a wild wail. Oh, Carolyn, there it is again. There it is again. Carolyn Glynn, you look, said Mrs. Brigham. Look, what is that dreadful shadow? Carolyn rose, turned, and stood confronting the wall. How should I know, she said. It has been there every night since he died, cried Rebecca. Every night? Yes, he died Thursday, and this is Saturday. That makes three nights, said Carolyn rigidly. She stood as if holding her calm with a vice of concentrated will. It, it looks like, like, stammered Mrs. Brigham in a tone of intense horror. I know what it looks like well enough, said Carolyn. I've got eyes in my head. It looks like Edward, burst out Rebecca in a sort of frenzy of fear. Oh, so we've got a, a ghost shadow. A ghost How do they know it looks like Edward? Maybe it's in profile? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just a sense of it. You know, like they were just so familiar with the brother's body that, and how he is and his, the way he carries himself that this is somehow the shadow. That's probably likely. I thought maybe he just had a gigantic nose. You know, or, <laughs> Could be. Or he had a like kind of a, a, a sassy hat he liked to wear. Yeah, he had a sassy hat. I think that's right. It's pretty crazy that Rebecca has seen this every night. And it's, I mean, I would be freaking out a little bit more than she is about it, but she's not. She didn't want everybody else to, to see it either. Right. There's a good bit of weird fictioning here because in that line that we just heard, she says, it looks like Edward. And then there's an, another thing she says, she goes, only, and then Mrs. Brigham Emma says... Only, oh, it is awful. So there's something else. Right. That's a component of this shadow. This is, I mean, this is definitely weird fiction. I mean, it's a ghost story. Right. Typical ghost kind of revenge type story that we're getting here. But the way that the writing is, it definitely touches on the weird. Well, that's the part that chilled me more than anything, because what is it? What's on the shadow that they can see that they're not talking about? I don't know. You know, I thought maybe it was a sword sticking out of the guy, but he probably got poisoned, right? I mean, if he if he died yeah. of indigestion. Henry's a doctor. He would probably know a good thing to poison him with that yeah. would make it unnoticeable, untraceable. That got to me, though. That that, that little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, one of the things that crossed my mind is that like maybe there's some other part of the shadow that kind of moves independently of it, but is still part of it. Oh, yeah, maybe. You know, like just something around it or going through it or I don't know, man, just... Yeah. Something creepy. It's that vagueness that allows my imagination to try and come up with something really creepy. Now, Henry comes in and he wants to know, what are you guys all looking at? What are you, what are you 
so fascinated by. He just sees they're all looking at something and then he looks at it and he's horrified and he says, what is that? Emma says, oh, it must be something in the room casting the shadow. And so he starts moving around because he knows what it is. He recognizes it as well. Right. So he starts moving objects around in the room trying to figure out what's making the shadow and everything he touches and moves, it doesn't affect the shadow. He starts freaking out. He starts raging. He starts throwing things around the room trying to, in his frantic moving, and he even throws over a chair and it breaks. And then he stops and he just starts laughing and thinks, you know, what am I doing? It's just a shadow. Yeah, he realizes what he looks like in his sister's eyes. He tries to say, oh, no, the chair's fine. Everything's cool. I don't know what I'm getting so upset about. But they can tell he's still afraid and he's still upset, but he's trying to play it off. And then they're all afraid. They're all afraid of the shadow and they're afraid of him. Right at that point, thankfully, the dinner bell rings and everybody quickly gets up and just gets out of the room. And when they do, they're all have their backs facing the shadow so they don't have to look at it. They're all freaked out about the shadow. They decide they're not going to go back to the study anymore. They're going to go sit in the South Parlor together. And Henry is there included. He's like reading the paper. But around nine o'clock, Henry just gets up and he goes to the study. Emma wants to know what he's up to and like what he's doing in the study. So she sneaks off. She comes back and she tells the, the girls what she saw. And basically Henry had this old sword, I think it was their father's sword, and he's slashing around the shadow with the sword trying to figure out where the light's coming from. And it kind of looks like he's about to attack it. And that's when she sort of just gets out of there and and leaves. And when she says this, she's like, is there wine still around the house? Because I need to drink some wine. (laughs) She knows that there's wine in the house. She's just playing innocent. Yeah. (laughs) That old wine in the house. I swear it's in the cupboard over there that I want it really bad. Can you give it to me? (laughs) So all of the sisters go, you know what, it's time to go up to bed. And when they go up to bed, Caroline calls to Henry. She doesn't look in there. She just calls to him and says, hey, put the light out before you come upstairs. Mm-hmm. An hour or so later, we're following him. He goes out of the study, goes into the parlor with a lamp. And he's looking around at the shadows in the in the parlor. Well, I think that he was seeing it in the study. He decided to move the lamp to other places, and it keeps popping up everywhere he goes. That, at that point, he gives up. He goes up to bed. It's midnight. The sisters hear him come up because they're still awake because they're freaked out, too. Next day is the funeral. No biggie. Folks show up, pay their respects. No one goes into the study. Everyone goes to bed. Henry goes back into the study and the shadow's there. And we don't know exactly what happens when he's in there, but he's in there. Yeah. Next morning, after the day after the funeral, Henry announces that he is going into the city for three days. Now, the sisters are surprised by this because he rarely leaves home if he's not working at his practice yeah. as a physician. So for him going to the city, that's really strange. And especially since he's been neglecting his patients because he's been dealing with his brother's funeral and everything. Three days is an awful long time to be gone, given that it's been so neglected. Right. I don't know what he's off to do, but I wondered what the significance of three days was. Why is it three days he's leaving for? Oh, there's always a, a three. Three is one of those numbers. Mm, that's true. I thought maybe it was a religious thing because it's, wasn't it three days before Christ rose from the dead again? I don't know if there. Yeah. I, I think I think there's traditions that say one's soul is sort of hovering over one's body for three days, perhaps until it goes off to. I, I didn't know if maybe that had something to do with it. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Before it goes off to the afterlife. He. D- it's been longer than than he died than three days though. He's right. to rest. You know, they said it was three days before the funeral. Hmm. So I don't know. But three is kind of one of those, it's a magic number that they pops up a lot of, a lot yeah, of times. Sure. So he says he's going to be gone for three days. He's going to go visit an old classmate of his, this Dr. Mitford. Right. But then he even rolls back that explanation at one point. You know, later as he's leaving, one of them asks and he says, no, I'm not going to go see him now. I'm just leaving. Three days pass and he was expected to return, but he doesn't. They were all in the South Parlor. There was no light in the study. The door was ajar. Presently, Mrs. Brigham rose She could not have told why. Something seemed to impel her, some will outside her own. 
she went out of the room, again wrapping her rustling skirts round that she might pass noiselessly, and began pushing at the swollen door of the study. She has not got any lamp, said Rebecca in a shaking voice. Carolyn, who was writing letters, rose again, took the only remaining lamp in the room, and followed her sister. Rebecca had risen, but she stood trembling, not venturing to follow. The doorbell rang, but the others did not hear it. It was on the south door, on the other side of the house from the study. Rebecca, after hesitating until the bell rang the second time, went to the door. She remembered that the servant was out. Carolyn and her sister Emma entered the study. Carolyn set the lamp on the table. They looked at the wall, and there were two shadows. The sisters stood, clutching each other, staring at the awful things on the wall. Then Rebecca came in, staggering with a telegram in her hand. Here is a telegram, she gasped. Henry is dead. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of it. Two ghost shadows. Counting shadows on the wall. How long do you think those shadows are going to have to stay there? I don't know. What happened? Yeah, I mean, can you guess at what happened here? Why, uh, where he went? And... You know, actually, maybe we can look to Lovecraft here because he, he talks about this story in supernatural yeah. horror literature. And I'll, I will read the quote for you. Horror material of an authentic force may be found in the work of the New England realist Mary E. Wilkins whose volume of short tales, The Wind in the Rosebush, contains a number of noteworthy achievements. In The Shadows on the Wall, we are shown with consummate skill that the response of a staid New England household to uncanny tragedy and the sourceless shadow of the poisoned brother well prepares us for the climactic moment when the shadow of a secret murderer who has killed himself in a neighboring city suddenly appears beside it. Lovecraft is saying that he went to a neighboring city and killed himself. Why? This is like Macbeth stuff, right? The blood that won't wash off the hands. The, sure. You know, it's the guilt. The shadow won't allow him to guiltlessly get away from what he's done. And that tortured him enough, I suppose, that he... Do you think that maybe he tried to leave town to get rid of the shadow because the shadow was at the house? And when he went away, the shadow still followed him? Oh, that's possible. Yeah. And then he just realized that he was never going to escape the shadow and he killed himself it's possible i don't know i'm just throwing that out there killing himself thing although it's probably seems obvious didn't quite occur to me i thought maybe he was going to try to resolve this somehow was he going to wait three days and then dig up the body or was he i, I just didn't know what i like to think that the shadow grew really long claws and mm -hmm. it, its eyes glowed kind of red and then it came off the wall and then they fought <laughs> With, with a sword, he shot laser beams out of his eyes, melted his head. Lasers? Yeah. That is uh, one interpretation. <laughs> shadows are pretty scary, though. It taps into, um, I was scared of shadows on the wall when I was a little Of course. Little of course. Anything that was uh, showing in through the window and would kind of be playing on the wall opposite while you're trying to sleep, your brain would make up all kinds of crazy determinations of what those shadows were actually of you know sure i re i remember one of our our cemetery adventures i i saw some shadows that i could have sworn were some kind of spectral yeah encounter <laughs> who knows what what it really was probably just a tree branch you know make, casting a shadow on the side of a building but 
Yeah. It made me run. Shadows are scary. Yeah. And also, do you remember the allegory of the cave that Plato talked about as well, mm. which talked about shadows on the wall, which I thought maybe might have some bearing on this, but really doesn't. <laughs> well, I think that she was taking that basic, um, how can we use the supernatural to drive home somebody's guilt? It's a typical ghost story mechanism. I think what elevates this a little bit is what's not said. And also the the characters being in the position that they're in. Oh, yeah. Well, in the writing, you kind of really understand there's a, a social hierarchy with these women. Yeah. Like, it seems like to me, Caroline is probably the oldest sister. I mean, this is not said. This is just from the writing and the way they talk to one another and the way they treat each other, that Caroline was probably the oldest sister. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, like you said, was not married. And then the more attractive second sister, which is Emma, and she got married. And then right. the youngest sister, Rebecca. And just by the way that they treat each other, mm-hmm. that seemed really clear to me that that was... I mean, did you get that as well? Yeah. And they definitely have a bond between the three of them. But the fact is, Emma's husband, Mrs. Brigham's husband, never shows up in the sh- no. story. Yet he informs it because she's elevated because she has a husband. Right. It's kind of interesting. This also suggested to me kind of a wartime setting, even though it's not. The idea that these men are going out to do their violence and the women are just left behind with their shadows. <laughs> this is what they have left. The, they went out, you know, they're, they're out murdering each other and they're just kind of left behind with images of them that oh, they can wow. never have the actual people back. If I were going to adapt this, I think I would put it in a setting like that, either an actual civil war setting of some kind or even um, street violence. I thought you could make this would be a cool prequel if maybe these these three women moved on to combat ghosts together. They were like 1900s Ghostbusters kind of thing. You think this this movie is actually a prequel to Ghostbusters? No, no. I, I think the story is a good setup for a series of stories in which these three sisters combat ghosts. But it could be possible that Emma is maybe like Venkman's great-great-grandmother. That's possible, yeah. You could tie it to Ghostbusters. Okay. I will. <laughs> if that's what you're trying to do. You know, I think if they ever, I think they should make a Ghostbusters television series. Yeah, why not? The only characters that should come over should be the two people who are getting experimented on by Venkman in the beginning. The girl and the, and the guy. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who was all mad. Right, yeah. The one he was getting electric shocks to. You could keep your five dollars. <laughs> I love Vegman so mad he goes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it'd be great if that guy grew up to take over the university and he was the angry dean and then and then the 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 girl who was had the quote unquote psychic powers ends up being the kind of uh, Venkman character. That's my pitch. Eight o'clock. I was just going to say 8 o'clock. <laughs> Next week, we're going to continue the theme of women writers. We've yeah. got this old fragment. It's from 18th century, I believe. Sir Bertrand by Anna Barbal. Something that Lovecraft like. It's got some horrific imagery, I believe. I haven't read it, so it'll be a, a cool thing to look into. And again, if anybody knows of some good public domain weird fiction by women writers from around this era, shoot us a note. We'd like to have a look at it. I want to thank our reader, Chelsea Vulgaris, again, for doing an outstanding job. Knocked it out of the park, Chelsea. Thank you. And of course, do not forget about our sponsor, Unspeakable Oath, number 24. Great reading. Even if you don't play the role-playing game, you will still get some awesome stuff in this. You can pick it up at fine gaming stores everywhere, or you can grab it online at arcdream.com or drivethroughrpg.com. The Unspeakable Oath, number 24. And with that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.